So Genesis 11, and we'll read from uh, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they all have one language, and this is the only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will be now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And therefore, confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of God. Amen. So in Genesis um, 11 verse 1, we read that at some point in human history, the whole world spoke just one language. Today, there are over six and a half thousand languages in the world. But at one point in human history, there was only one. So how do we go from one language to six and a half thousand languages. And this is where chapter 11 and these verses come in. So just to give us a bit of, help us to remember a little bit, a hundred years before Genesis 11, eight people got off the ark. And by the time we get from Genesis chapter eight to Genesis chapter 11, it's a guess, no one knows for sure, but historians think there are probably at least 20,000 people on earth. If you remember back in Genesis 9 verse 1, Noah had commanded, sorry, God had commanded Noah and his family who got off the ark, he said to them in 9 verse 1, multiply and spread across the earth. That was his command. But instead of doing this, we see in verse 11, that they stuck together. They didn't spread as they should have done. In verse 2, we read that they find a place to settle down together. A place is called Shinar. It's a massive plain in the ancient world, which is, still exists, obviously, to this day. Then in verse 3, we read that uh, this group of people, they burn bricks and make mortar in order to build a city and a tower. Now, when I read through these verses and read through them a few times, verse 3 and verse 4 stick out because it seems like a weird detail to add into the text, right? Like, why would you just, why do we care that they burned bricks and, and made mortar? What's that got to do with what's going on with God's people? Well, there's two reasons I think Moses includes this, and he wants us to catch, firstly, that catch the phrase, let us. 
Let us, they say in verse 3, in verse 4, again they say, let us. In other words, what they're saying at this point in history is let us get together as one people, let us turn against the Lord, let us do our own thing. And then it's clear in verse 4 why they began doing it. Look at verse 4. He said to himself, come, let us build ourselves, let us build ourselves a city, a tower, with its top in the heavens, let us make a name for ourselves. That's the first reason they build this city and this tower. They want to make a name for themselves. They're full of pride. They don't want to make a name for the Lord. They want to make a name for themselves. And that ancient motivation is very much alive and well in our technically advanced civilization, isn't it? If the godless had iPhones back when these words were written, then there would have been pictures of the city and selfies next to the tower all over social media, right? They'd been banging it up on Instagram, no problem. Their young people would have been chasing the dream of being a social media influencer. They'd have pictures every five seconds. We live in a society obsessed with being noticed and feeling heard. No different to the people in the ancient world who wanted to build this city and this tower. I, I, was, I heard something on the news the other day, and I can't quite remember where it came from, but I've heard it a few times now. A survey was done among Western young people and Chinese young people about what their ambitions for life were. Number one ambition for Chinese people apparently was a medical profession or law. The number one for Western young people was famous or social media influencer. People want a name. People want to make a name for themselves. People want to be liked on whatever social media platform is trendy right now. And we'll use whatever we can in order to make a name for ourselves. But what these people fail to realize, and what we often fail to realize, is that we all find our significance in God's not in ourselves and our own achievements in life, right? God created us. God gives us significance, not the strangers who hit the heart button on our latest Instagram post or WhatsApp message. Once we remove God from the equation in this world, as these people do, we are going to be left adrift in a meaningless, purposeless, godless mess. People will do and say and post anything and everything to fill the vacuum of their souls. People will seek love. They will seek validation anywhere and everywhere except in the Lord's. 
And the Bible is clear. If we live our lives as the center of our own universe, then ultimately we will die spiritually. If we really want to live in the way God intended us to live, then we would die to self and worship Jesus. But these people, clearly in verse 4, wanted to make a name for themselves. They want to be their own gods. They'd become as sinful and arrogant as all those who'd lived before the floods. The floods, the judgment of God, had not changed the heart of humanity. At all. They'd become arrogant. And unless God intervened, they were going to be unstoppable. At this point, remember, in history, there's no enemies to divide people. There are one massive group working together against the Lord and his commands. This project is about pride, and pride is the biggest of human weaknesses. And it's led to the downfall of many men and women. It was the original sin of Adam and Eve. It's this sin. It is a sin all of us at one degree or another battle within our lives, don't we? There's a second reason they do this thing in verse 4. If the first is for pride, the second reason is just complete, all-out disobedience. Look at the phrase, lest we be spread or dispersed over the face of the earth. Again, this is in direct disobedience to God's command to spread. This is going to be a godless city. This is going to be a, a, a city where they'd all live together and, live and, 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 and lock God out of the gates. It's why, if you look at verse 9, it's known as Babel. Because that is the root word of Babylon. And what is Babylon? Babylon was the name of a powerful ancient empire famous for idolatry and wickedness. So what starts with that small, at least to them, act of disobedience in the Garden of Eden grew and grew and spread and spread. Adam and Eve at least had the decency to be embarrassed by their sin. As we're into Genesis 11 now, these people don't care. They're openly saying to one another, Let's disobey the Lord and do this thing. Remember God's words, Genesis 6, 5 to 7? Let me just remind us. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out. The man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. We're in the same position here in Genesis 11 verse 4 as they were before God brought the floods. And here's the great irony of this verse. They build a tower not to be scattered, but they end up scattered anyway because they're about to find out that it is pointless to go against the will of God. He'll let you go so far. But sooner or later, a line will be drawn in the sand and consequences will have to be faced. Again, just remember, 
only a hundred years after the devastation of the worldwide floods. That's not a long time. People are quick to forget, aren't they? People will believe in almost anything rather than the Lord's. But most of all, people will believe in their own achievements and in their own abilities. But history teaches us what happens when nations come together and push God out of the picture. Ethnic cleansing. All across Europe. All across Africa. What the godless communism wiped out how many people? 50 million people. One rough estimate. Human suffering on a grand scale. And this nation has got blood on its hands. And sit and judge everybody else in the world. History is awash with the blood of our hands and our ancestors. Godless. Turned against the Lord's. And the fruit was, life became nothing to them. And our modern condition is not new. It's here in Genesis chapter 11. This is the first, if you like, avowedly public atheistic city in the world. The first one, it's right here. This is their social experiment. What would a city be like if it was without the Lord's. Well, let's have a look at what God does with their efforts. Look at verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. We just read that and we just read it. It's just a verse, right? But what you don't know and what we don't understand we look at the language in original, and you don't have to worry about it. Just take my word for it. You can, you know, if you don't trust me, Google it later. But there is real sarcasm in these verses. And I'll explain how in a minute. The Lord comes down. He comes to have a look. First lesson, nothing is hidden from the Lord. Nothing. So the human race, they've come together. They've built this amazing amazing tower. They have built something so great it probably has never been seen before in the world at that time. Something so magnificent that the whole world would be talking about it and celebrating their greatness. Remember, how many years ago now? Maybe 10 years ago, Miriam and I went to Dubai. A friend of ours was a minister there and we um, went to the Burj Khalifa. People heard of that? Apparently, it, is it still the tallest tower in the world? I don't know anymore. It's tall. And uh, we went up the tower and we went up a few hundred floors and we stepped out and it was so tall that as we looked down, we were looking down on clouds and looking down on helicopters and planes flying by. That's how high we were. It was freaky. This is a massive... Was it as big as the Burj Khalifa? I mean, I doubt it. But for them, this tower would have been thought of in the way we think of 
when we think about the Burj Khalifa. Huge thing. Who built it? Amazing. Geniuses. But unless you're a Hebrew scholar, you won't get the play on words here. God has to stoop down. The text says literally has to get off his chair and have a little look. He's squinting at this point. To see this thing that they thought was the greatest thing that ever was. It's so puny to him. The image of it is he's barely able to see from his lofty position from heaven. God's laughing at this thing. And again, remember this phrase, come on, come let us. Remember? They said, come let us do this, come let us do that. Well, God says it himself in verse 6, very purposely. Come let us. Who's the us? Come let us. Come let the Trinity see what you've got. Oh, look. So small and insignificant. We'll have to get a magnifying glass out, lads, to have a better look. Look at verse 6 as well. Look, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose will now be impossible for them. What's he saying here? Is he condemning them for being geniuses? Is he condemning them for, uh, for being bright? Is he condemning them for being united? Yes, he is. And at first glance, you read that verse and think, that's a bit odd. God condemning people for coming together. It's a bit, bit of a hard verse to swallow for many people, religious leaders, who think that the way the world should work and the way we bring about world peace is all religions just come together, united. But let me tell you something. God doesn't want unity at any cost. God will only take unity under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I hesitate to say it, but I will. I believe Jesus will take division over godless unity. Jesus Christ didn't come to unify the world, but to divide it. Jesus came, didn't he? Did he say in Matthew's gospel to divide families? Set fathers against sons and mothers against daughters, didn't he? Remember that? We can't follow him and follow our selfish, worldly ambitions at the same time. He says in James, is he not? Friendship with the world is the enemy of God's. But then this judgment comes in verse 7. So we know, don't we, pre-flood, the judgment was... The flood, but the promise is what? I'll never do that in that way again. So now we see a judgment in verse 7. Come, notice the language again. Let us, this is the Trinity, go down there, confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. The judgment is confusion of speech, bringing about division. And it's true even today. You can't accomplish anything in life without a common understanding of language and culture. You get all the world leaders together at these big 
meetings they have, G8 conferences and World Peace Summits. Every leader needs at least a dozen people and several interpreters. These things go on for hours and days and weeks. And even then, it's hard for everybody to understand one another. But there's none of that in Babel. They're on the same page. They all speak in the same language. They're all united together in what they're trying to do. Must have been freaky, right? One minute you're talking to your pal in Babel, past the brick sun, you know, stick a bit of mortar on that. The next minute he's talking gibberish to you. Can't understand a word he's saying. And he can't understand you. So why, why, why does God do this? Well, he does it simply to stop them drifting further and further away from the Lord and sinking deeper and deeper to sin. This is an act of pettiness. This is an act of grace. And it's fascinating, again, to me, that God deals with their sin by bringing disunity. Remember, peace does not always come with unity. Sometimes it comes with disunity. Peaceful division is always better than united apostasy. Remember that. This church does not unite with any other church or organization that denies that Jesus is God, that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of his people, that Jesus took upon himself the full wrath of God, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, appeared to many witnesses, and ascended bodily into glory, when one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. Peace between religious people at the expense of truth is a lie. And so God judges these people and confuses them. Nobody understands them. Interesting, when you, let me read Psalm 2, 1 to 4. Psalm 2, 1 to 4 says this, the Lord speaking, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Listen to the language. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. We're far too evil to be allowed to come together under one common language and culture this side of eternity. In fact, the gospel spreads better because there are 6,500 languages in the world. This division keeps men and women in check from having absolute power. Drug dealers, intelligent ones, know that they can achieve far more by having gangs deal their drugs than they can do by running the operation themselves. One person campaigning against the government is weaker than 100 people united. 
Remember, the Bible teaches at heart we're all sinners. And the popular belief, even some Christians believe this, that at heart, we're all basically good. But the problem is, at heart, we're all basically evil. No matter whether you're a Christian or not, that is true. At heart, we are basically evil. And if we were allowed to get away with it, we would do sickening things to one another. Let me tell you a story. I think I've told this story before many years ago, but this, one of the most fascinating books about World War II, honestly, if you can get hold of it, it's freaky, but it's really good. It's really interesting. It's not good. Anyway, so, there's a book, I can't remember its title, but it's about a Polish town called, uh, I'm not pronouncing this right, but it's called Jedwabne. Jedwabne is a small town in Poland. Now, when, when Hitler went to war in 1939, he didn't want to have to fight on two fronts, and so he did a deal with the Russians to keep them on side. He says, listen... I'll give you one half of Poland. I'll keep the other half of Poland. And that way, there's, a, there's like a distance between Hitler and the Russians. That way, the Russians won't come in from the other side. Okay? It's a smart move. And the buffer... So, 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 so Poland is split in two. East goes to Russia, west to Germany. Now, the town in the east, this town, uh, Jedwabne, was never occupied by Germans. Russians occupied it. There were 3,000 people there, and about half of these people were Jews. And the Jews and the Poles had lived together in that town peacefully for 300 years. In fact, there was hardly any single case of recorded crime in that town before World War II, okay? Peace, harmony, good relations. But then in 1941, Hitler decides he doesn't like that deal anymore, so he moves in, takes over all of Poland to get to Russia. And on the 22nd of June, 1941, the first German soldiers marched into uh, Jedwabne. June the 21st. On July the 10th, two weeks later, every single Jew, man, woman, and child, were slaughtered in a single day. All of them, without exception. They were murdered with axes, with pitchforks. Children were rounded up and burned to death in cattle sheds. And the Russians didn't do it. When the Russians controlled the city, it was peaceful. The Germans didn't do it. Not one of those people was killed by a German soldier. They were killed by their neighbors. And this has baffled sociologists for 70 years. So many books about this town. What happened? If you believe that at heart the human race is ultimately good, which they do, they're trying to understand what happens. So book after book after book 
has been written. How did these townspeople so quickly turn on their friends and neighbors? And not one book has any adequate explanation. But I don't, I don't need to visit the place. I don't need to write a book. I just need to read the Bible to give you the answer. The Germans simply said to the people in that town, go ahead, do what you like, don't worry, nobody will hold you to account. We'll turn a blind eye. And the Polish murdered all these Jews out of greed, largely, because they wanted their farms, they wanted their property, and they wanted their money. There was no brainwashing required for them to murder their neighbors. All they needed was permission to act however they pleased. Jed Wabne is a testimony to what exactly so-called decent human beings are capable with if they're allowed to get away with murder. Babel would have gone down the same route had God allowed it. These people getting too big for their boots. These people thinking God is an irrelevance. Let's build and live life without him. But anything we build or create in our lives where we do not give thanks and honor and praise to God, trust me, it's worthless. We've got to guard our hearts against our fierce, independent streak and pride. We've got to guard our hearts. And sometimes we need one another to guard our hearts, don't we? Because the only thing that will count in this world when we die is not whatever monuments we built, how great we were, or what we did. It is this. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Babel is supposed to lead us back to Jesus. However, however great we think we are as a person, however great we think we are as a nation of people or a race of people or how great we think our culture is, God is infinitely greater than any one of us could ever hope to be. You know, the most terrible monument ever erected in the history of the world was not Babel, it was the cross. Designed by men. It was the sign of the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. Jesus dies in agony. And yet, at the same time, it's the scene of his greatest triumph as he rises again victorious over death to secure eternal life for those of us who will turn from our sins and put our faith and trust in him. So the judgment of Babel is actually an act of grace. God knows that when sinners get together, they sin. So he puts this spiritual boundary in place to protect them from themselves. Imagine going to a local swimming pool and the sign says, swim responsibly. Responsibly. 
What do people do? People think, well, the first thing we ask ourselves is, what do you mean by responsibly, though? Don't we? What does that mean? Does that mean I can dive bomb? As long as I do it in a controlled way? Can I jump from the roof beams into the water? What's the human inclination? The human inclination is to push the boundaries as much as possible. And so therefore, what happens? You end up with 400 signs all over the building, being specific. We still have 500 signs in the cafe over there, do you? This was a warning sign to the world, Babel. Do not go down this path, for there lies the way of destruction. And so it was an act of grace. Do not go down this path, for that way spells danger. That is the same warning sign God hands out today. You want to continue living your life your way, your rules? Fine. But still you know... At the end of the day, you'll stand before Almighty God and give account. And it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why do that? Why do that? Why persist in pride and stubbornness and disobedience against Almighty God when you can just humbly submit yourself, confess your sin, repent, and receive eternal life through Christ's name. We've no need to reach up to heaven for God. We've no need to stumble about in the dark looking for him. Jesus came to us. He came to save us from ourselves. He came to save us from our sin. Let me leave you with this. Imagine what you think would happen if we built a city in Glasgow for people to live in. Let's say we build a new town, right? Top of the range. I'm talking... Million pound houses. Best medical center you've ever seen in the world. Best facilities. Best schools in the world. Best teachers in the world. It's all there. Best infrastructure. And you don't have to worry about there being any type of government or any policing. Yours. Go and live as you please. Follow your heart. Do you think that that community would prosper? You think that community would be, become peaceful and a loving place, a prosperous place where everybody got on crime free? Anyone naive enough to think that's going to happen? We know it's going to happen, don't we? I'm moving there. I'm buying every shotgun I can get my hands on to protect myself. Because we know it's going to happen. Survival of the fittest. The weak and the vulnerable, they'll go first. Various factions will get together and murder one another. Why? For power, for control. That's why we need laws. That's why we need policing. That's why we need our God-given boundaries in this life. Without God's 
restraining grace on this world right now, we really would know what hell is like. You think it's bad now? Imagine when all the restraints are gone and the Lord departs and leaves us to our own devices. We need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. And we need to be united in worshipping him and obeying his word. The only community that God approves of uniting in the world is the Christian community, where people of all languages and cultures can come together under one roof and praise the Lord as he should be praised. Amen.